Hey, Sarasota, it's Bob. So it's been a wonderful grind over the past 18 months. We've had some fabulous guests. We've produced over 150 episodes. and We've had over 10,000 listens from you wonderful folks in the greater Sarasota area. It's been a lot of fun, but also it's been a lot of work. And so we've decided to take a little bit of a break until this fall. When you check out other podcasts, you're going to see that most put out a new episode only once a week. We put out two, so of course that means there's twice the work. A lot of show notes, scheduling, guests, editing, etc., etc., etc. So we've decided to take a little break for the rest of the summer and we will resume this fall. And we'll let you know. But before I sign off, can you do me a little favor? Reach out to us via Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Drop us a little note. I'd like to know more about what you want to hear when we resume in the next couple of weeks. That'd be a big help because without you, dear listener, we would not exist. As always, thank you for tuning in. Have a wonderful summer, and we'll be back soon where you can listen, learn, and connect. Good morning, Sarasota. This is the Sarasota Stories Podcast. One of the reasons I started this podcast was to meet fascinating people doing fascinating work. Today's guest clearly fits the bill as a former investigative reporter who's interviewed some of the most powerful and dangerous people in the world. Hi, I'm your host, Bob Williams, and I'm very pleased to welcome Mercedes Soler, co-owner and president of Soulmart Media. In this episode, you'll learn one thing most people don't know about Mercedes, the famous American woman who influenced her to pursue journalism what it was like interviewing drug kingpin Carlos Later, why she and husband Thomas decided to buy a local radio station, and much, much more. Thank you for stopping by today, as is my hope you will listen, learn, and connect. Mercedes Soler, co-owner and president of Soul Mart Media. Welcome to the Sarasota Stories podcast. Thank you, Bob. How are you? Well, I am doing fine. I'm doing great. Because when you and I met at MediaCon, which is the local chapter of the Public Relations Association of Florida, we met. We didn't have much time to chat, but I started looking into your background and I thought, I really need to have you on the show because I have, how can I put this? I've always been, I guess, um, geared towards Central and South America and Spanish and the, and the Hispanic community. We're going to get into the reason why that is true, and we are going to go get into your background, which is quite extensive, and I'm very impressed with uh, with your career so far because you got a lot going on with your media company right now, but before we get into all that, I want you to share what is one thing that most people don't know about Mercedes Soler. So my right foot is uh, smaller than my left foot. <laughs> I have whole size, so I need to get if, if in in a perfect world I'd get a size eight, eight and a size seven shoe. Uh, in in my world, I buy size eight, and then my my right foot up kind of sticks out of my shoe as I'm walking. That's that's it's it's wow. interesting. It's interesting you say that. I have a brother. I'm the youngest of three boys, three men, I should say today. But I have a brother who was born, he's about six feet tall, but he has, I think, size seven or eight shoes. 
And when the internet came about, I went to a website that was called wideshoes.com because he has size triple E and size seven shoes. He's six feet tall. And I bought him a certificate and he bought shoes. He says, it's the first time I've ever had shoes that fit my feet. He said, thank you very much. So. <laughs> Note it. <laughs> yeah, that's my little piece of trivia. Well, you have had a really a fascinating background for many, many years. You're originally from Havana. You left there at age eight. You've worked for Univision, Univision and CNN Espanol. You've covered this September 11th terrorist attacks as a journalist. They shuttle disaster. You've had some fascinating interviews over your career with drug, drug kingpin Carlos Lader. You've interviewed many presidents from South America, such as Carlos Menem and Mexican President um, Huertado, Peruvian President Alberto Fujimori, Colombian President Ernesto Penzano. My goodness, I, I, I'm intimidated right now even having you on this podcast. How did you get into journalism? Well, Bob, thanks. Please don't be intimidated. Um, <laughs> we're all human, right? And yeah, I. Yeah. I felt intimidated many times sitting in front of presidents, but at, at asking them questions. Uh, but at the same time, if they ended up in front of my camera, they had something to account for. And that's why they were there. So like you said, I was born in Havana and my parents left, took their family out of Cuba in 19, uh, early seventies, 1972. They didn't want to raise their daughters in a communist state. Yes. We we all at this point understand what communism is. And it was the middle of the Cold War, so they couldn't bring us straight to the U.S. We had visas, but we had to wait them out in a third country. And that country, the country that was willing to take us in was Spain. Anybody who knows a little bit of history, recent history, Spain in 1972 uh, was um, headed by El Generalissimo Francisco Franco. And yep. he, he was a fascist. So I, I went from an extreme leftist, uh, communist uh, regime to an extreme rightist um, um, type of government. And I'm here to tell you they're all the same piece of crap. Um, that's how um, I ended up in Spain. It was amazing because in Cuba we had... Uh, this was in the early 70s, and it hasn't gotten any better. In fact, it's gotten worse. But even then, we had shortages of food. We had a shortage of, of electricity. We have shortages of medicine. I was asthmatic. I was a chronic asthmatic, and I had no medicine. Me too. And I, I remember my mom rocking me on a chair on our terrace in El Vedado, uh, which is the city center. And with, with an asthma attack. And even though I was very young, me asking her, why don't I have medicine? And why, why aren't the lights on? Why can't I have a glass of water? Why, why is everything so bad? Um, and then arriving in Spain where there was food. And the first thing that called my attention was food, uh, the, the variety of food and pastries and chocolate. Oh my God. And, and the hams and the smell of, of, in of medicine food in, in, the, in the street <laughs> in the bazaars but but television for a young kid you know it was black and white television you know you're looking for anything new and there was really there was something called el telediario so the the daily news but mostly it it was 
uh, images of the weather and very controlled news. It wasn't until 1975 that we were able to leave Spain and come to the U.S. that we arrived in Chicago, that I started really watching television and color television and found news, the news broadcast that we know today that I didn't know then had been invented in the U.S. And I was just, I, I fell in love. I was watching television and learn English, but I fell in love with television news. And there was this lady on, on the news that some people may remember. Her name was Barbara Walters. Absolutely. And I just thought, oh, my God, if I could have that kind of a job, how exciting to be a part of history, to be a part of uh, a, a, a daily goings on. And and so she inspired me. I never met her. I, I really didn't need to meet her. You know, it's kind of sometimes a double edged sword to meet your heroes. But um, but she inspired me at the time. Spanish television wasn't what it is today. It was in its infancy. Um, I didn't see a Spanish newscast in the U.S. until about when I, until the time I was in college. Yeah. Um, and then when I saw it, I was like, I can do what they're doing. Right. And so I had this passion and I told my mom, my mom was, my mom was a PhD and my mom was uh, a brilliant woman. And my father was this, this Renaissance man. And the best thing about my parents is that they believed in me. And when, when your parents believe in you and they tell you that you believe them, right? Sure. They're the absolutely. In your life. They God bless you. mom and dad. And I believe them. And because they believed me, I went out and, and said, I'm going to do this. So one day, um, my mom, my mom was director of an after school program in Pilsen in the Mexican community in Chicago. And she's a social worker and, and, a Spanish reporter from WOJO Radio uh, came to interview her, and she told him, my daughter wants to be in, in Spanish media, or media, period. And he said, well, I can talk to her. And he came to our house, and he talked to me, and he said, look, I work for a commercial radio, but I also volunteer on Sundays uh, at WLUW, 88.7 FM, which, had, which is Loyola University's radio station. And... At the time, he had a radio show called Dimension Latina, or the Latin Dimension. He says, you can come, uh, if a student runs, you can come, and I can introduce you to the guy who runs the show. So following Sunday, I show up, and I said, I want to do the news. <laughs> what experience? Zero. But I was so convinced I could do this, right? And he said, yeah, come, come, come uh, every Sunday, it, it, whatever you want to do. And so I started going on Sundays and I'd get there at 10 a.m. And Sunday mornings, the AP wire, wire had been rolling those, those, those big paper, rolls of paper had been rolling all night. And I picked through it and cut the old cut of the wire and, and then get on a, on a typewriter and translate yep. news into Spanish. Um, and, and I got to tell you, by the time that that was my senior year in high school, um, but by my senior year in high school, I was so assimilated into English that my Spanish was a, a little bit uh, rusty and my my academic Spanish ended at around fifth or sixth grade when I left Spain. So I had to reteach myself a more high level Spanish and I did that for four years. By the time I graduated Loyola University, I 
went to look for a job at Uni- Univision, at Univision, Miami and Chicago, and they both offered me a job. I took Miami for many reasons. My parents were retiring. They were moving to Miami. Um, Miami seemed to be uh, to be becoming that um, Spanish um, media leader in the U.S. And so that that's what I ended up doing. My husband, who's the guy who started that Dimension Latina show, uh, and and gave me my my first break on the radio in college. By the way, that show Dimension Latina is still on the air 40 years later. Oh wow! It's helped a bunch of students get into Spanish media. Uh, But we said then, you know, we love radio. Hopefully, one day we can have our own radio company. And so that the, the seed was planted then. Uh, we came to Miami. He started uh, in sales in Miami. And I started as a beat reporter on the night beat for the local Univision Channel 23 WLTV. And um, within three years, they offered me to go onto the network. And he, on his side, um, went into management. And then he started managing stations and station groups. And he was managing stations in Texas, L.A., Miami, and, and working with Spanish uh, radio conglomerates, running stations in Latin America. So it's been fascinating. Got the whole scope. Got the full Wonderful. scope. Then. It's been exciting. Um, and and I, I've lived the life I said to live. And, and I've, I've, I've lived that dream. And and coming full circle now and owning our radio stations is finally owning our American dream. And I'll oh, tell you what you want, but that's um, incredible. Well, I, the thing is, is I feel like I should um, set aside about ten or twelve hours to interview you because I know you have such such an incredible background. But uh, but uh, it, it is incredible the because uh, I can sense the enthusiasm that you still have for the industry. And for what you do, but I will say what I am really curious about is these high profile interviews that you did when you were back with Univision and CNN Espanol. What was it like to interview drug kingpin Carlos Lader? Because that I, I've always been, I mean, in, in kind of a, in a strange way, I've always been fascinated by, you know, I see, you know, you see these, these shows of, uh, you know, the drug kingpins and whatnot. But I mean, to actually sit in front of somebody like that and to ask questions to me just sends chills down my spine. Okay. So Carlos later got life. He got life in prison, right? Yes. He, he was a master. He's the first mastermind who created the illicit routes for bringing drugs from Colombia straight to the U.S. through Miami. And he did that by buying a little island, I think near Panama, and uh, and, and getting a, a, a landing strip on it. It was just a spit of land. Um, and they would uh, they would leave Colombia, they they drop off in in this island, and then they they'd use these cigarette boats to speed the drugs into Miami through different areas. Um, it was he he was brilliant. He was a strategist. Um, he was a bit of a, of, of a case, though. I mean, he was a German background. He was, he was, he was anti-Semitic. He, he was, he was a 
one of these larger than life personalities. But he I got can caught. imagine, yeah. He got put behind bars and he was he ended up in Illinois penitentiary, which is the the it, level six security. So the highest level security in the country. Maximum security, yeah. He was there with spies. He was there with the worst of the worst. And he was left inside this cell, a, a meter times a meter, more or less. Um, I have video looking into the cell. 23 hours a day. He was only allowed out, I think, once a day to enter a courtyard um, and, and never see the sun. Uh, so he got bored. Uh, and I started writing him letters because I, I think the mistake a lot of journalists made at the time was go to their lawyers and start asking lawyers for interviews because lawyers don't want their clients to say anything that could hurt them in, in a possible, uh, in another possible case. So they don't let him talk to the media. I went to him directly and, and he started writing back and he agreed to an interview. And, and when I finally was in front of him, they brought, and it was, the worst part is going to these maximum penitentiary. Yeah, I can imagine. I've been in prison before um, visiting. You go through the first layer and, and it's just getting to the front door. And then you start going through these doors. They slam up behind you before you go through the next set of doors. And they slam those behind you, start going deeper and deeper. And it's kind of freaky. And they brought in shackled uh, hands and legs and all of that. He just was happy to get out of his cage and talk. And can imagine. Oh my. he talked in a way that he thought um, he was a bit misogy misogynist in, in a way that he didn't think would get back to him. Um, but it did because uh, in the meantime, the U.S. had had brought in uh, General Noriega and they were holding him in Miami and they were going to put him on trial. And one of the questions I asked him was, will you testify against Noriega? Because Noriega allowed him those places, allowed his, his planes to land in Panama. He took a cut, all of that. He said, no, he would never testify against Noriega. He ended up testifying against Noriega. Of course. He's out of jail. He's out of the penitentiary. He was let out a couple of years ago. He's living in Germany. I hear he has cancer. Uh, I did try to reach him a couple of times through uh, Secret Service because I know that they changed his name and all sure. of that um, and never was able to reach him again. Oh, my goodness. I mean, what was it like to actually prepare for an interview like that? I mean, in, in some regards, I'm sure it was very um, eerie to go into the prison like that, but to prepare for an interview – but on the other hand, it would seem to me like you have carte blanche to ask him any questions that you yes. want because he's behind bars. Yeah. I mean, what, what's going to happen to you? And I'm sure there are many other. It's a lot more eerie to go into Latin American penitentiaries, which I've done. Uh, mm. At least in, the, in in a U.S. penitentiary, you feel you feel protected by guards. In Latin American penitentiaries, that they let you in, and there's gangs in there and, and they're protecting their own turfs and they do sure. have weapons. So it's a little scarier. Um, preparing is you got to know your stuff. You got to know your history, but it's the psychological game because some of these people, uh, especially men of, of, of power in Latin America, which is a very machista culture, um, think they can, they can run around women interviewing them. 
And I got that from him. I got that from Osvaldo Romo, who was a torturer for the Augusto Pinochet regime in, in Chile. And, and they think that you, you're going to be soft on them or you're not as smart as they are. And right. that ends up, that ends up tripping them. And they end up saying things that they probably didn't think they were going to say. Interesting. Interesting. Well, as I mentioned to you off Mike, I've spent some time down in Argentina and Chile, and I've talked with some of the some of the women down there. And they say, "Well, we'll marry anybody except a Chileno man," <laughs> because of the machismo aspect. That was just a comment I ran into, which I thought was pretty funny. But no, I just um, when I saw that you would interview a fellow like that, I just thought, you know, what an extraordinary, uh, what an extraordinary interview to have. Um, I mean, there's no wonder that you've won all these awards, Peabody Awards, et cetera. And also, how do you get in to actually do the interviews with uh, the various South American presidents that you have done? Again, you've done Menem and Fujimori and, and whatnot. What I mean, what is it like to to go and interview men like that? You got to be very prepared. You got to know your background. Menem, for example was accused of uh, of taking bribes and uh, and, right. and, uh, and of taking money and they're going to deny it. And so it's the way they deny it and it's how they respond and how you can uh, get them to continue talking about it. Um, the same happened with Arnaldo Aleman of Nicaragua. He was accused of taking hundreds of thousands of dollars. He denied it on camera. And, and of course, then they, they can continue to deny it. But then when you put together your story, then, you know, you have to put the facts next to those denials and, and let people decide. And, and that's the beauty of, of journalism. It's being able to show not just two sides, but as many sides as, as a story may have. So the audience uh, will be informed and will be able to think critically, think and analyze a story and make up their own mind. Um, that's something that worries me. I think journalism is is definitely the one of the most important pillars of democracy. Um, and the fact that I I see journalism under attack so much um, gives me pause. Um, I I've seen what journalism and openness can do. Like um, an example is that torturer that I mentioned. He he was a sadist. Before I interviewed him, I talked to five women whom he had tortured and raped in in oh Augusto Pinochet's um, dirty war yeah. of, of 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 the late eighties and early nineties. The Chilean and, dictator, yeah. And so when when he when I sat down with him, he he denied all of it, right? Sure. That's what they do. They deny, and then he he, he thought he could continue to um, um, put one over on me, like he had done throughout his lifetime. And I interviewed him for about five hours. It was one of the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, he kept denying that he had tortured women, and 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 I had to. I I finally thought to myself, how do I crack this guy? Um, and I started talking to him in, in the hypothetical. I said, well, hypothetically, if you had, if, if you had to get rid of a body, how would you? And, and he said, well, you know, this is a country of volcanoes. Um, oh what my about, goodness. 
putting a body in, in a helicopter and dropping him inside the caldera of, of a volcano. Who would find him there? Or or on, on, on the ocean. And I said, well, you know, bodies wash ashore. He said, well, not, not if. If you rip open the belly and, and take out the innards. So. Oh my goodness. Oh my. And you did this for over five hours. My goodness. All of this is hypothetical, but that's, it's, it's, it ends up being a mind game. Uh, who has, who can stay focused the longest, uh, during an interview to get to the, the heart of, of truth telling. Well, my goodness. I, again, I could go on for two hours about this this part of the interview, but I, I do kind of want to move on and bring us up to what's happening now with Soulmart Media. How did you end up uh, again from you know from the Miami area to this part of uh, Florida? And then how did you discover that there was kind of a missing part of um, media for the Hispanic community here in Western? In Western Florida. So we lived in Miami for 32 years. And my whole career was Spanish media. And so was Tom's. And we saw we saw the tectonic lakes shifting in media. And in television particularly. And just like working for any big corporation, we thought, you know, one of these days, our time is going to be up. And then what do we do? Where do we go yes. and how do we make a living if the, the big companies that we're working for decide they no longer need our services or they want to pay less for our services or they want somebody younger or prettier or shinier? Um, Very smart. Yeah. So what do we do then? Because we still have kids to raise and we still, you know, we have a, a life to live. And so... I, I'm very lucky that I have wonderful friends and, and I've kept wonderful relationships throughout my career. And I have a very dear friend who's currently um, general manager of WPLG Channel 10 in Miami. His name is Bert Medina. And Bert called me one day and said, you know, uh, um, Broadcasters Association in Washington has a program for minorities and they're, they're training um People in our industry to become owners and operators of, of media. Are you interested in me nominating you for that training? And I said, uh, I'm very interested, not for me personally, because my background is more content and editorial, but I'm more interested in hopefully Tom uh, taking it up because his background is management. But if Tom doesn't do it, I'll do it because one of us has to do it. Um, so uh, Tom wouldn't, did not want to do it because he was managing stations in five cities at the time and he was and we had our children were in middle school and he was like I can't be traveling and and it was crazy uh, I don't know how I convinced him and he decided to do it um before that he kind of said to me you know I don't need this I know everything I need to know <laughs> I've been doing this my whole life um, and the and the wife I, said no you do not you need this <laughs> Well, the, the commitment was a three-day weekend once a month for a whole year. It was like a master's degree. Yes. And um, after his first trip to Washington, he came back and he said, I know nothing. I have no idea how to do this on, on the back end. Uh, and, and he was fascinated and he loved it. 
he did, he finished the course and the day he finished, he said, we're buying radio stations. I said, okay, I've been waiting for those words. Um, and then we started looking. Obviously, we couldn't compete in Miami. Miami has 15 sure. uh, Spanish language radio stations. Pretty saturated, yeah. Spanish networks, uh, five independent TV stations. We couldn't compete with the kind of money that market uh, exalts. It's a top tier market. So we needed to go to a secondary or a tertiary market. We started looking in Florida and two radio stations were up uh, for sale in Zolfo Springs. If you know Zolfo Springs, it's, it's, it's cow patty. Cow pasture, just like Arcadia, because that was the other area that you were opening up in. My goodness. All right. Um, But we were very enthusiastic and we said, we'll buy them. So we bought these two FM radio stations. One of them uh, is La Zeta, which con- continues to be our legacy um, station. La Zeta went on the air with a me- Mexican regional format over 20, almost 25 years ago. So it was the first one to do so in the state of Florida. The second station was a country station competing in a market of five country stations. So we flipped it into Spanish as well. And uh, within a couple of years, um, just in case you want to know if we ever um, wondered if our if our entrepreneurial spirit was going to survive, um, Tom actually started running these stations while running two stations in Miami Monday through Thursday and driving here um, Thursday afternoon, going back home Sundays, uh, oh and that was. That was a three-hour drive each way. He did that for five years. And he accommodated one of the rooms of the radio station as a bedroom. The station, thankfully, had a shower. So he could live there the three days, two days he was there. And uh, when we left Miami, um, and I waited for two things to leave Miami. Number one, my son graduating high school and going off to college. My older daughter had already gone off to college. And my mom who suffered from dementia and my twin sister and I took care of her until she passed. She was our number one priority. And when those two things happened, I felt ready to put our house in Miami for sale and come and join Tom in this incredible, scary venture. Uh, And yeah, the first year we didn't make money. We didn't lose money, but we didn't make money. The second year was also very tight. Um, um, we decided to move into, we realized we were in a tertiary market, decided we needed to be at least in a secondary market. So Sarasota was that place. Yes. We bought an AM radio station in Sarasota. And it was a tough sell because uh, when we told the broker we wanted to buy the station and Tom met with the owner who was running it out of his house with a classic music format, he refused to sell it to Tom. And we went back to the broker and Tom told the broker, make an offer anonymously. And and then he accepted. So basically he didn't want to sell his radio station to Hispanics. Um, We bought the radio station and applied to the FCC for an FM translator to... um, Put on our AM. We were granted that, um, created the 99.1 FM signal, which didn't exist prior to Solmar Media. And that was, and, 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 and that was a, a game changer. We built station. I'm sorry. We, we built studios on Honoré by Fruitville. 
state-of-the-art studios, beautiful studios. And here we are, um, 30% growth the last two years. That's incredible. That is, so give us a, a perspective of the scope of the market here. Um, I, I read a statistic, I think 19 or 20% of the population in this greater area is Hispanic. And I think 50% of that is Mexican. Is that correct? Is that about right? That's about right for for Southwest Florida, not for the whole state of Florida. Yeah, yeah. Now, we cover nine counties, and I, I wish I had pulled it up. Uh, I don't have it. That's fine. Ready. Yeah, you I, cover I nine counties. But um, some of our counties, like Hardy uh, County, has more than 60% of the students in the public schools are Hispanic. And when I give you numbers, I, I want to caution because the numbers used by media to quantify populations are the census numbers. However, we know that census, at least the last census, was under undercounted Hispanics and Blacks and was cut short because of the pandemic. And also we know that Hispanics don't like to be counted. Uh, they don't like they don't like talking to government officials. They most likely left their countries because they were afraid of government. Sure. Um, so it's catch twenty two to really measure our community. Uh, so a better way that we found for measuring our community is to go through the public school system numbers. And so in Sarasota, the, the census will tell you that we have ten percent um, Hispanic population. The school system will say twenty one percent. Uh, manatee. All of all of these are probably double what the census will say if you look at this public school numbers. So our population is growing. Um, this is what we call an emerging market. And yep. we did market analysis before we bought the stations. We got that 50% Mexican number before we got the station. That's why we jumped in. Why? Because according to the last census, um, there's 62, 63 million Hispanics in the U.S., and out of that, more than 40 million are Hispanic. I think that um, if you take into account 11 million undocumented, the number is closer to 70 plus, maybe 75 right. million Hispanics. Right, right. It's a huge market, and we were talking before I hit record the fact that uh, I, I've kind of, and this is again a broad stroke statement. Just, I've always kind of had a love for um, just you know Central and South America because I, when I went to university, I hung out with a bunch of Hispanic kids, and they were from Colombia and Mexico and Guatemala. A friend of mine, Julio Maldonado, was in my wedding, and so it was just I just always kind of had an affinity for that. And then, of course, I saw I came from a very parochial background in the Midwest, you know where. You know, it, we're always 10, 10 years behind the trends in the United States because it typically moves in from the East and the West Coast. But I really saw a need for my daughters, particularly their generation, to kind of go out into the world and certainly learn a second language, be exposed to different cultures. And so I sent them down to Panama f during the summertime to live uh, with a family down there and they learn Spanish. And so I, I just think it's uh, it's. I think the vision that uh, you and uh, Thomas saw of this emerging need is, of course, uh, you know, really fascinating. But it's I also think that it's uh, kind of the non-Spanish-speaking community here needs to realize 
of this melding of different cultures and, and the language and whatnot and, and just to embrace that. But I, I was also struck in some of the research that I did from the Herald Tribune back in July of 2019, where you and Thomas were interviewed. You made a statement in there. I think Thomas made the statement. said, it's also a priority to educate the community because a lot of them don't know the society they're living in. We think it's our job to entertain and inform them in a very objective way. Who are them? And what did you mean by that statement? So them is our audience. Yeah. Our audience right now is about a half a million people in the nine counties we serve. And throughout my career, I've, I've been a bridge between that English experience and the Spanish-speaking world. Uh, when people arrive in this country, or if they've been living in this country and haven't quite assimilated, it's it's hard to understand the experience of living here when when you have a different culture in your head, and that's how you grew up. So by that I meant, or he meant, or we meant, that we try to explain how how it is to 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 live in this country. For example. When the pandemic hit, we knew we had a pivot, right? Um, we did several things immediately. Um, Tom and I huddled and we brainstormed. And the first thing that he came up with, he said, let's give away public, uh, free advertising to anybody who wants to um, sample our, our station, anybody who wants to reach our community, anybody who wants to, has anything to say, uh, to our listeners, let them come here for free. And we did that for two months. We gave away advertising to about 70 businesses. Very the smart. second thing, second thing that, that I said was our community is very religious, mostly Catholic. They're closing churches. They need, they need that spirituality. We talked to St. Jude, which is a local church. Um, that, that attracts a lot of Hispanics, has a, a Spanish um, priest. And we said, we will do your Sunday mass for free and we'll put it on the air. To this day, we've been broadcasting the mass, St. Jude's Sunday mass, absolutely for free. We produce it, we go and we record the the, the father and the core, the, the choir sends us their music for that week. We assemble a mass and we put it on the air. And, and that we do to help, to educate, to elevate, to inform. Third thing we realized, um, doing all these interviews, when, when the pandemic was in Italy, we started interviewing Spanish speakers in Italy. When it moved to Spain, we started interviewing people in Spain. When it went to New York, we wanted to get our audience ready for the pandemic coming here. When it got to New York, obviously, it was everywhere in the U.S. Um, wow. But uh, we were talking to doctors and nurses and people who had had the, the the virus and people who had lost loved ones and any any story that you could have seen on English television or radio we were doing. And I thought when they closed the schools, I said, wait a minute, our audience is going to be those first uh, responders, those essential workers, the people that are going to still be working on. And in, in the grocery stores, in on the fields, delivering, those are our people. They can't stay home and, and work from a computer. Yeah. Uh, and they're going to have multiple generations living at home, several kids, not enough connectivity, not enough devices. And to top it, 
off, they may not understand the language on how to get their children uh, to work remotely um, with the schools. So I interviewed a woman who I knew um, had schooled her children at home and was in the process of uh, opening a bilingual academy here in Sarasota. Her name is uh, Jay Shafi. She is the founder of Dreamers Academy. And I put her on the air for 20 minutes. The minute I hung up, I said, we got to do a show. Uh, that's not enough. That's not enough. So for the last three years, we've had a show, weekly show and podcast, Por Nuestros Niños. It's called For Our Children. And we've helped our community navigate um, remote learning, get back in the classroom. And our main objective at this point is to the point you made earlier to talk about bilingualism, because this is one of the only top world uh, countries that's monolingual. And if you go anywhere in Europe or any of the other major industrial countries, their kids are taught multiple languages from grade school on. Um, and you're and you're making you're making a great point uh, because you know I mean we, we're isolated by two big oceans, and now it's changed I think a lot over the years. But I couldn't agree. We're not more isolated with you. from our back porch, yeah, but, which is but, all of Latin America. But but for, for for a couple hundred years we certainly were, and so I so I couldn't agree more. Is and so I appreciate what you're doing in that regard. So I, I think th think that's very prescient of, of what you are attempting to do and trying to provide a platform and provide a vehicle by which uh, Hispanics be more integrated into this community. I, I, I would assume in some regards it's a, it's a bit frustrating to, and excuse, excuse me from, from you know, kind of projecting here, maybe a little bit frustrating from your perspective of, of maybe the lack of embracing of the, his, the various Hispanic cultures by non-Spanish speakers. Is that correct or no? I think it depends on the person, Bob. Yeah. And, and I think the person is, it may be generational as well. Um, I, I think, you know, the U.S. is a great country. Um, there's, there's a lot I love about this country. When people ask me, where are you from? I say, I'm American. First, I'm American and then I'm Cuban American. And then I make, I make the distinction that I'm Cuban American from Miami. Yep. Not from that island. So yes. Yes, but you're providing, but you're providing a great. I think, I think again, you're just providing a great platform and, and media for that. And I, and and um, Mercedes, I feel like we just kind of like scratched the surface here, uh, and would love to have you back on the show in the future. But I guess my, my question is, is where do you want to take uh, Soulmart Media? That's a great question, Bob. We when we came here. We strategically wanted to build a radio network on the southwest um, part of the state because Spanish media is it, it, it it's concentrated in Miami on the east coast of the United States. So it goes yes. It goes north to Atlanta, CNN Español is in Atlanta, then it goes north to New York, NBC Telemundo are based in New York, all of that. But West Coast had been ignored. And we had done our research, we did our market analysis, and we realized, yes, there's a market here. And what we'd like to do, Sarasota was our, our, our feed in the water market, but what we'd like to do is buy stations in Tampa and Fort Myers and connect the full, the, the full Southwest area with a Spanish network radio station. 
radio group, I would I should say. Yes. Well, good. Well, it's it's a, it's a grand thing that you're doing here, and it's, uh, I wish you all the success going forward. If people want to find out more about you and uh, Swarmart Media, what's the best way to contact you? They can email me at info at soulmartmedia.com. That's S-O-L-M-A-R-T media.com. I'm also on social media. I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Mercedes Soler. I'm on Twitter, M Soler TV. I'm on Instagram, M Soler TV. And on Facebook under my name, Mercedes Soler. Well, we will certainly have that in the introduction and in all the show notes so people can reach out to you. It has been a pleasure having you on the show. And again, I feel like we just scratched the surface here. I'd love to hear more about those interviews that you did with these generals and whatnot, or excuse me, these presidents and uh, drug runners. I just, I I don't know. That's just always, that's just (laughs) always really interested me. So, but it has been a pleasure having you on the show and I hope to have you back in the future. Muchas gracias, Bob. De nada. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today. We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Bye-bye. Hello, dear listeners. This is Bob again. Thank you so much for stopping by. I sure hope you enjoy listening to our interviews as much as we do providing them. If so, would you do me a little favor? Go to sarasotastories.co and enter in your email. That way you'll get notifications of all upcoming episodes. Also, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And remember, no matter where you go, to listen, learn, and connect.